0: welcome to the bill kelly podcast i'm bill kelly well january just around the corner and we're still waiting for answers about what to expect after the christmas school break what needs to be done to make sure schools are safe as possible we'll discuss that in 2015 somebody in the federal government decided to drop a multi-million dollar residential school compensation case against the catholic church advocates and survivors want answers so why are former ministers staying silent on this issue and Canadians working exclusively at physical workplaces have reported worsening working lives. Paula Allen is the vice president of research and well being at LifeWorks, and she'll join us to discuss that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. A lot of concern about what's going to be happening in Ontario schools. Not now. I mean, you know, we're getting into this Christmas break. We all get that. But when are the kids going to be returning to school and kids of all ages of course secondary uh, elementary school Uh, there's a lot of concern because obviously we've seen some of the projections about omicron and what might be happening as a result of this well the premier was asked about this the other day and this is what he had to say i know you're concerned about your kids schools and what to expect after the new year i can tell you this no decision has been made on what that looks like yet we are simply not in the position to say the situation is evolving too quickly to be able to know where we'll be in early January, but what we're working on every single day with the goal of doing whatever is necessary to protect students and staff. Well, uh, I know I know the cynic says, uh, yeah, we've heard all that stuff before and it didn't seem to work out too well. So is there a comfort level there? And And... The question still needs to be answered. What are we going to do uh, once the new year starts? Is there going to be a delay? Uh, Is there going to be the hybrid model? I mean, there's so many things on the table right now. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Martha Haradaway, who is the vice president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Uh, Martha, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
1: Hi, Bill, and thanks for having me.
0: Well, so much going on here. So many questions, Martha. From uh, from parents, certainly. Uh, from students, certainly, and and from teachers and and people that are employed in this situation. We've seen this act before. Uh, the government's usually slow to respond to, to numbers, and you know there, there are options here that uh, that could include an extension of the Christmas break. It could be shutting schools down depending on what the numbers are like. But I, th- I guess the thing that concerns most people, and I know you and your members are probably in the same milk is, is the uncertainty. You just don't know what's going on. And how can you plan when you don't know what's going to happen?
1: Absolutely, Bill. Doug Ford needs to implement a plan today that keeps our communities and schools safe. He needs to work on that plan during the holiday break so when kids return on January 3rd, they can stay in school until the end of June. I would say, and I, and I think your listeners would agree that our students have sacrificed so much over the last two years. They have missed out on so much. They have missed out on the benefits of face-to-face learning. Our members are telling us that they are trying to play catch up for the amount of learning loss because our students have not had access to consistent in-person learning i would say that in addition uh, mental health might well be the biggest issue we face as we deal with the fallout of this pandemic across all segments of our society we have seen increases in levels of depression anxiety as well as related issues of burnout and those issues are absolutely showing up in our schools with our children and so we absolutely support keeping our schools open. And that is why we are pleading with the Premier to put the necessary safeguards in place today so students can return safely on January 3rd.
0: I mean, he did use the phrase the other day, and I'm sure you heard this too, Martha, was, you know, schools should be, what, the last to close and first to open. But, which only raised more questions, because the insinuations that suggest, Mr. Premier, that you're going to close them again? Uh, I mean, they're closed now for the break, we know that. But for how long? That's that's a question that I think deserves an answer.
1: Absolutely, and and I'll go back again and say, you know, having our kids in schools also means that they get access to the social supports uh, with their peers. That is absolutely so critical to the development of our children. Um, our students have lost out on what I would say would be a normal school experience. the last two years, you know, not going to prom, the, the Friday night football game, the kindergarten graduation, the holiday concerts. Premier Ford needs to make a decision today and work with teachers, parents, and education workers across this province to ensure that a plan is in place so our children can return on January 3rd.
0: Let's talk a little bit about what they can do and probably should be doing over the next couple of weeks here, if we could, Martha. Uh, Mm -hmm. The schools, for the most part, are vacant right now. They're they're going into Christmas break. We all know that. Uh, We know that there's still work to be done on on many, many of the the bricks and mortar uh, situations here, vis-a-vis ventilation, things of this nature, putting other safeguards in place. Uh, This seems to me to be an ideal opportunity for them to to put a big rush on getting an awful lot of this stuff done uh, because they're what i'm hearing uh, from from frontline people in other words teachers and people that are working as custodians is they haven't done as much work as, as they like us to believe uh, when it comes to making these schools as safe as possible uh, is, is there any discussion at all about using this opportunity and it is an opportunity uh to move forward on on that workload that needs to be done so the kids will be safe when they go back
1: Absolutely. The premier has 14 days from now till January 3rd to get this right, to work with teachers, parents, education workers across this province to make sure our students return on January 3rd. You know, I'll say that a few weeks ago, the minister did announce that every student in Ontario would have access to rapid tests during the holiday Mm -hmm. break. So I want to acknowledge that that was a good first step. Um, but the minister completely missed the mark by not extending access to rapid testing to the adults working in the schools and those caring adults uh, working with their children. I believe that mass testing is going to be absolutely critical to identifying those who are carrying the virus but not yet displaying symptoms and having those individuals stay at home and isolate during the holiday break. You and I would agree that if one rapid test can prevent an individual from going into the community or going into our schools and unknowingly transmitting the virus to all the other students in the schools, it's gonna be absolutely critical to keeping our schools open. However, you know, as we've said before, this is only one layer of protection that needs to be put in place to keep our community safe. And I would further encourage uh, the minister to go one step further and provide those access to rapid testing, not only during the holiday season, but certainly after the holiday break, so our students can remain safe and be in schools until the end of June.
0: a criticism, and I think probably a legitimate one based on some of their actions, or maybe even more to the point in actions over uh-huh. the last year and a half or so, Martha, that it seemed as if the government would dismiss some of the options that, that you and others have, have suggested. Uh, and, and it seemed to be based on cost. They didn't come out and actually say that, but they just oh, that that's way too expensive. We should do this, this, this instead. Uh, I, I, I'm reticent to, to put a price tag on this and we're talking about public safety here and I don't know if there's any project that's going to be worthwhile here that you can't say well it's too expensive to do. We need to do what needs to be done uh, to keep people safe. Are we over that now? Do you, are you confident that the government is going to take every action they possibly can to make sure that these these facilities are safe and that the people that work and and learn and teach in them are also going to be safe?
1: I would encourage the premier to use the $2.7 billion of unspent COVID uh, funding that the financial accountability officer identified uh, back in the fall to ensure that the proper measures are put in place so our students and staff can remain safe uh, come January. You know, we've been calling on this government to provide asymptomatic rapid testing for schools since the beginning of the pandemic. And up until last week, the guidance on testing really did fall short and left our schools vulnerable to community spread. You know, I'll just go back a little bit the rapid tests were being provided in circumstances where students were returning after a COVID-related closure um, uh, was identified. And so we are still calling on the government to provide a comprehensive asymptomatic testing program in our schools for our students and the adults that work in them. Um, You know, and, and Doug Ford, he not only resisted that suggested, he had suggestion, he actually interfered with a group of parents in York um, who attempted to source their own rapid antigen tests, set up their own testing at dozens of individual schools. And, um, but when the premier found out about it, he put a stop to it. So, you know, you have to ask yourself, why did the premier not want parents and and educators to have access to those tests i really can't come up with a good reason
0: no i we talked to that group uh in in york region as that was occurring and it was a very frustrating exercise uh what about vaccinations uh you know we we all know that vaccinations especially the boosters are not going to be available to everybody over age 18 now that qualifies with the appropriate time in between the second and the booster we get that now uh, that goes into effect today, I'm just to remind our listeners about that. But what about your members, Martha? Uh, yep. we, we've talked about vaccination for students. Uh, I'm not quite pleased with the, the the rollout here. I still think they could be a little more aggressive at the Ministry of Education about that. But are your members being encouraged to vaccinate? Are they being told to vaccinate? What's the status there?
1: Bill, on, on yesterday's school tracker um, available on the website, it showed 11,000 cumulative cases. Uh, with 72 schools closed, Um, it's a problem. And that's why we need a plan over the next two weeks that includes a vaccine blitz for children, uh, ages five to 11 years old, Uh, teachers and education workers need to have access to boosters before January 3rd. And a real plan from this government from Better Protections with access to better masks, such as N95 or KN95 masks. Um, In conversations we've had with you before, we've called on the government for smaller class sizes, physical distancing. We as as a union and as a federation and our members are going to do everything we absolutely can to make sure that those protections are in place for our students so we can return on January, January 3rd. And I have no doubt that our members will do their part uh, to limit community spread over the holidays. But again, we're pleading with this premier to come up with a plan that keeps our community safe.
0: The problem is, I'm not just sure the medical experts agree with that. I mean, from a general standpoint, not just the teachers, but they already know that they said, look, people are getting tired of this. They're going to gather, even though we've told them not to. Uh, The projections, as you've seen for the numbers uh, over the next couple of weeks, are are pretty frightening as to the number of new cases. And we also know now uh, that, that this particular variant this omicron variant is far more transmissible so in other words if you do have 30 or 40 students in a classroom there's a pretty good chance it's going to spread if somebody has it uh simply because it's airborne and it's going to be problematic so they've got to alter the game plan here that 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 needs to be part of it it's one thing to make the vaccinations available martha but what about the uptake on this are you are your members ready willing and able to, to to roll up their sleeves and get the poke too to make sure that everybody's as safe as they can be
1: Absolutely, I I believe that we are. Uh, 92% of our members uh, across the education sector have been uh, double vaccinated. But, you know, I want to go back and say that the government needs to stop keeping us in the dark and consult with us. That is something that the premier and the minister of education has not done over the course of the last two years. And you know, with the new variant, we are at an absolutely critical stage. If we want to keep our schools open and children return on January 3rd and keep them in school until the end of June. Um, you, we need to know how this government will prioritize a safe return to in-person learning uh, coming out of the holidays. And, uh, you know, we don't want families to be scrambling the morning of January 3rd.
0: Are you confident that that's going to happen? And I'm going to put this in under this context. They're, they're talking, we had Dr. Union from the, the health table, of course, on the program on Friday, and uh, he's projecting a huge, huge spike in cases, uh, not just around the holiday season, but the week after that as well. Some are suggesting that that right now the government should be acting and simply say, okay, you know what? It's not going to be January 3rd. Let's give it until the middle of the month. Let's wait until the 10th or whatever and see what the numbers look like. Then, uh, it's, it's erring on the side of caution. I understand that. Uh, but is it, is it a policy that the government should start to embrace right now, instead of waiting and, and, and reacting as opposed to being proactive?
1: I believe uh, the government can be, be proactive. Uh, you know, starting starting today, we are advocating for a safe in-person learning experience for student and staff. Following uh, the December school break, we are willing. We've extended the offer. We're extending it once again to work with the government to ensure that our students are back in school on January 3rd, there have been multiple measures um, suggested that the premier can put in place including access uh, to mass testing as I identified earlier because again, I believe that's going to be absolutely critical uh, to identifying those who are carrying the virus but not yet displaying symptoms and having those individuals stay at home and isolate during the holiday break
0: well exactly and, and this is one of the other things that uh, the epidemiologists have told us too i mean children especially could be asymptomatic but they're still carrying it and uh, the person that they transmitted to may not be asymptomatic so there's a concern there uh lots more to talk about this and we'll see just how the government's going to respond over the next couple of days uh martha thank you so much for the time today uh hoping that things are going to work out and uh, all the best of the uh, christmas season to you and uh, hopefully this will be a happy story in january appreciate you joining us today though
1: thank you bill
0: take care martha heradaway who was the vice president of the ontario secondary school teachers federation uh, echoing an awful lot of the concerns that have been raised about uh, what the government needs to be doing right now and some clarity and some some vision as to how they're going to handle uh, what looks like a pretty messy next couple of weeks with the uh, the new omicron cases
2: you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml
0: as we uh, draw toward the end of the year invariably we're going to start talking about some of the top news stories of uh, 2021 and uh, right near the top of that list if not at the top was the the tragic uh, revelation of course of residential schools and the uh, the unmarked graves uh, the number of them and those excavations and those uh, investigations are still continuing of course and uh, the government as always most governments tend to be is slow to react to this uh, although uh, the federal fiscal update from uh, a few days ago did include 40 billion dollars to cover compensation for first nations children Uh, crown indigenous relations minister mark miller says that this agreement is also going to include long-term reforms to the child welfare system and he admits that many canadians may be surprised by the cost this portion
2: will come as uh, perhaps a shock to many people but it reflects again 30 years of discrimination against the most vulnerable segment of society and an equal investment to fix the system once and for good so that we are not repeating the, the pattern. I think this is near and dear to Indigenous people's hearts, particularly in the light of the discoveries around residential schools and bringing the children back.
0: Well, because of the uh, track record, not just of this government, but past governments as well, you can understand the uh, certain skepticism that a lot of people are still feeling. You know, we have to judge this by actions, not by announcements, I suppose. Uh, but there's another element to this too, and that has to do with, uh, well, the concern and the revelation that somebody uh, in government uh, decided that they were going to drop the uh, the legal action against the Catholic Church put on behalf of the residential schools. Uh, this happened in the year 2015, and uh, there's a lot of gray area here, and there's a lot of questions being asked. Uh, and like I got to tell you, the information is not be forthcoming. Joining us to talk about this is David Taylor. David is a lawyer who has represented First Nations uh, in uh, in many of the uh, litigations that we've talked about over the last little while. Uh, David, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for the time today.
2: Thanks, Bill. How are you doing today?
0: I'm good. I am I'm, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by the response from government here, David, when we start talking about their their response to the request here. It's, it's a simple question. Who signed off on this? Who basically put this thing to bed and said, we're not going to bother pursuing this anymore? Uh, nobody seems to want to own up to this. Nobody even seems to want to shed any light on this
2: yeah it's it's a bit of a who's on first uh situation here and it and it seems that you know we're we're, we're kind of falling victim a bit to the very long election you might remember we had back in 2015 yeah. and that was one where the uh, the Harper government uh, you know called the election I think it was sometime in August and that stretched all the way through to October And so what's uh you know based on some tweets from uh, you know Minister Miller uh, yesterday it looks like what has happened, is that the the, the then minister of, uh, of of what was called back then Aboriginal Affairs signed off on this settlement at some point during uh, what's called uh, the caretaker period? At least that's what uh, what Minister Miller is saying uh, as of yesterday, and caretaker just uh, you know for the less uh, the less uh, interested in the kind of arcane uh, you know uh, government con- conventions that you know surround constitutional democracy is a period between elections when the government essentially is not supposed to make any decisions uh, that are going to bind the future government and so it's it's quite curious if that's actually what happened that the minister signed off on it that the uh, you know that that would have you know taken place because it's not uh, it's not consistent with the usual uh, approach which is that you know you you uh, if there's a possibility to appeal something you appeal it and then you ask for the timelines to be paused so that the next government coming in can make a decision about whether to pursue the appeal or to drop it. And so in this case, the decision to drop the appeal was made by, by the, uh, well, what we would then, what we would later find out was the outgoing government. So that's a very kind of curious uh, situation to be in.
0: Yeah, the phrase that our listeners may be familiar with is lame duck uh, government. No. In other words, they've, they've lost the election. Uh, the new government hasn't been sworn in, and the ministers certainly have not been sworn in yet. So, uh, But you're right, the tradition, of course, parliamentary-wise anyway, is that don't do anything of, of any consequence here. Just kind of make sure that uh, the ship stays afloat, uh, but don't start changing direction. Don't make any in policy decisions, uh, especially yeah. of, of, of a magnitude of this. And this was a major policy decision, wasn't
2: it? Oh, it, it's absolutely. I mean, the, the people don't recognize this often, but, you know, the residential school settlement agreement didn't just involve the federal government. Obviously, the federal government paid out billions in, uh, in compensation through both the common experience uh, payment to survivors and to the individual assessment process. But the Catholic Church and other churches uh, were part of the settlement as well, because residential schools were a system that was you know, while they were conceived of, you know, and designed and funded uh, through the federal government, they were implemented by churches in many cases. And the Catholic Church certainly was, was, uh, was, was a very large participant in rolling this out. And so when there was a settlement agreement back in the early 2000s, uh, you know, they were one of the parties at the table who had skin in the game and uh, and th- you know the significance of this is that uh you know there was there were substantial commitments that were asked for from the catholic church and you know tens of billions of dollars that were to be paid into a number of items and you know a decade later the catholic church came back and you know effectively and this this is you know this is a you know certainly a, a, you know at a summary le- summary level but effectively it says you know we, we can't do it and so there was a, a an alleged settlement uh in uh, in in and around 2015 uh, you know, and I say alleged because the, the church went to court and said we've got a settlement, and the federal government said no, we don't. Uh, and the first level judge, the trial judge, said actually, yeah, there is a settlement, and that's that's what was appealed was whether or not there had been a settlement between the government and the church to relieve the church of some of its obligations under the settlement agreement. Uh, so it, so it's effectively, you know, it's 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 a very significant point, and it's very strange to have seen it dealt with uh, in this way between, you know, essentially when we didn't have someone at the wheel uh, between governments.
0: And we're talking substantial amounts of money. Uh, just to throw a couple of numbers at you here, the the entities made three promises, the Catholic entities uh, totaling $79 million uh, as a result of this settlement, uh, $29 million in cash, uh, and then there was another $25 million nationally uh, that they did not raise. Instead of $25 million, I think they raised like $4 million or something like that. You're right, and then they basically said, we, we don't have the money, we can't raise the money. Although, you know, the investigative report that was done by the Toronto Star a few months ago now indicated that uh, during this period of time that they quote unquote didn't have the money, they spent about $300 million uh, on church and uh, cathedral building projects around the country. So it's not a matter of they didn't have the money, it's where they thought the money should be spent. which is all the more reason, David, why the, the government shouldn't have dropped the ball on this. Uh, you know, there's no skin in the game here for the government. They basically, uh, the courts essentially said, yeah, you got to keep their feet to the fire on this. And somebody just decided, no, it's not worth it anymore. Uh, and, and, of course, I, as, as you know, and the reporting has indicated right now, they've tried to talk to the former minister. And he is, uh, shall we say, not being forthcoming.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I've seen seen some of those reports too. I think the 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 phrase, the term it was put in was, you know, I'm I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm not looking towards the past. I'm looking towards the future. Um, so, I mean, there's there's a lot of questions here, and I think it's you know, particularly for survivors, uh, and frankly for anyone who was involved in that that deal on either side, whether it was the other churches or the governments. I mean, there were obligations that were uh, that were that were entered into in order to settle what was a historic, uh, you know, lawsuit like we've talked about. You know, over the past years, there's, you know, the settlement for Sixty Scoop. Uh, there's the settlement for, you know, the boil water advisories and First Nations uh, communities. You know, we, we've discussed, you know, compensation for, uh, you know, child and family services, child welfare, uh, you know, victims for First Nations children and families. And this was really the first, you know, this was the first uh, of these big settlements that kind of started this uh, this historic uh, you know, atonement is the wrong word because I don't think it's possible to to ever atone. But the first steps towards reconciliation, uh, you know, now almost uh, almost twenty years ago, and so to have you know one one party, you know, in this in this in this really historic uh, you know historic settlement agreement, you know, be able to kind of uh, uh, you know have obligations minimized in this way. I think there are some transparency concerns about you know how exactly did that work in terms of the government decision making at a time really when the government shouldn't have been making any decisions at all um so it's it, it just it, it is a concerning uh concerning thing to see and i think also you know we should have some lessons learned for you know how how to ensure this doesn't happen again because we will you know very thankfully continue having elections you know at least every four or five years in this country going forward and so if there's another one of these big uh moments or a big case that's happening when we just happen to be kind of you know in in that space you know when democracy is, you know, is when the people are exercising their, their, their franchise, you know, how do we make sure we don't have another slip up like this again? Like that's, uh, you know, that's, that's in my, in my view, very important thing to find out. And and
0: there's so many things at play here. We understand that. And, and, you know, this crisis here, this problem seems to be almost at the intersection of of politicalization and, and, and legal ramifications. Uh, And and those two intersect an awful lot up in Ottawa, unfortunately, Uh, because, and let's, you know, let's, I'm not, losing the fact that you know the government that apparently uh, supposedly signed off on this was a conservative government and now it's a liberal government and uh, there's always going to be finger pointing going on but somebody in miller's department who's the current minister uh, says that yeah it was the conservatives that did this and there's actually a document that validates that and when they were asked for it they said no it's a secret document who makes that determination david
2: well, and that, and that would that would be the, the folks, the folks who are in power now, um, you know, who have, who have control over those documents. I mean, it, it depends. Be, I guess the one exception to that would be if it's a cabinet conf- confidence. And that's essentially yeah. the those core documents at the, at the heart of cabinet decision making, because that actually lives with the cabinet that made the decision as opposed to the cabinet that's in office today. But if it's, you know, if it's solicitor client privilege, which is advice between lawyers and clients or other kinds of, you know, Confidentiality related to litigation—you know—the government could could make decisions on that on its own. Um, if it can't, it should certainly be explaining why it can't. And uh, you know, a, a good example of this is another uh, announcement from the minister uh, from Minister Miller, sometime in the last couple of weeks, that there are a number of documents that survivors have been asking for that the government is willing to release. You know, despite agreements with the Catholic Church that they would remain uh, secret. And so, in that case, the government has looked at the policy around things and said, you know what, transparency is better uh, than upholding these, uh, these, these, these confidentiality promises made in a different context. And so, you know, you, you wonder if a similar analysis can't be brought to bear here, uh, you know, because of how important it is to understand what exactly happened, uh, you know, now, now almost, you know, six and a half years ago. Uh,
0: It's incredulous, actually, when you see the reaction and, and, uh, uh, clearly the former Mr. Mr. Mr., uh, Valcourt has his backup on this. Uh, And, you know, he said the the documentation on this. And and basically he said, look, I did a lot of stuff when I was minister. I don't really recall this. You sign off on a $79 million lawsuit. I I think you remember that, especially toward the end of your tenure as the the minister. Uh, For him to suggest that, well, there's all sorts of documents in there. And I think the phrase he used, they're tucked far, far away and nobody's ever going to see them. (laughs) Uh, boy, anybody who wants to start stirring up the uh, you know the old cover-up uh, stories here is getting an awful lot of fodder from the former minister here. It's the the lack of, of of information that we know is available that's just not going to be allowed to to see you know the light of day is is incredulous here, which I guess begs the question here, David, what ramifications are there but more importantly what avenues do you have and and uh, do the people that are trying to pursue this have to try to uh, resurrect this i guess is is maybe the word
2: well it's you know it's it's, it's pretty hard it's pretty hard to resurrect you know settlements that have been uh, have been kind of si- signed and done uh, for for six years i think you know there have been growing questions around this since the summer and i think that the continuing public pressure is uh, is 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 a very important part of this and certainly it's something we've seen uh, this government in particular respond to uh, over the last few years and particularly on files involving uh, First Nations uh, First Nations peoples. And I think, you know, the, the, the other thing, and it's like I've just mentioned is again, like the focus really has to be as well on how does this not happen again? Uh, because even if, you know, if the story is, as the, the, the current government is suggesting that it was something that was signed off on by Minister Valcourt, um, you know, ministers don't, uh, you know, create these documents and take these calls on their own. There's a whole professional public service uh, that's behind them uh, in in terms of supporting those decisions being brought forward. And so, you know, what, what were the steps within the professional public service that led to, you know, that document even being on the minister's desk during an election? Because everyone has an obligation uh, to uphold this caretaker convention. And that's you know one of the important parts of the public service between elections is to uh, is to ensure that that matters are left open and preserve the next government and not to give too much of a history lesson but that goes all the way back to the 1890s you know when we had one prime minister on his way out the door appoint a raft of senators and the governor general said no no you've lost the election sir I won't name those people to the senate um, so it's a very old and robust tradition that our 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 public servants uh, need to be keeping keeping the door open for whomever will win the election. And so I think that there are some questions certainly as well that the, and the present government should be asking those questions too, um, because it's, uh, it's important for, for all participants in the system to hold this caretaker principle, um, to, to uphold that principle.
0: Shockingly, the church says, uh, you know, nothing to see here and no smoke here, guys. Uh, they, they said they'd fulfilled their obligations, which is a rather outrageous statement, I think, David, because the numbers clearly indicate that they didn't come anywhere near close to fulfilling the obligations as stated in the settlement.
2: Well, certainly they they fulfilled they fulfilled my understanding from the stories is they fulfilled the obligations. Their lawyers were able to negotiate for them, um, you know in the in the uh, in the in the wake of this uh, in the wake of this uh, this this compromise, which the government's position at least before the trial court wasn't a compromise, um, but they lost that and then uh, and then didn't appeal. So, uh, but certainly if you look if you look as you know the numbers you were pointing out a little bit earlier, you know three or four million versus seventy nine. Um, you know that's that's uh you know that's that's not even you know, not even t- uh, you know j- maybe just a little bit more than five percent of what was promised in the settlement agreement. So you know there's a legal side of this. there's a moral side to it too. Uh, and that's certainly something that uh, that you know one one would uh, one would hope, uh, but you know, we can't necessarily expect will be taken into consideration in terms of you know, looking at this again in the more more contemporary context when we know so much more than we did in the early 2000s about what has happened uh, at, at these horrible, horrible institutions. And I think, you know, that's, you know, when we look at the benefit of the settlement agreement, I mean, obviously there was was compensation to survivors, uh, which was, you know, an important part of it. Uh, But there's also, you know, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which is, you know, to my mind, one of the things that's really moved the needle uh, on our, at least our public consciousness of what happened and the very significant consequences of what happened. And that's still, you know, we're still learning as we saw over the summer with the uh, the very, you know, very tragic discovery of all these unmarked graves on all these former school sites uh, throughout the country.
0: Just on, I guess maybe it's a legal question here, on process. The, the federal government was not the aggrieved party here. It was it was the aboriginal people and the families of, of the victims. Uh, and that's what the settlement was all about in situations like this. Yet, the characterization that I'm, I'm starting to form here is that the government signed off on this and said, yeah, don't worry. But the aggrieved party was never even consulted. As a matter of fact, they were never even told that it was a settlement. They were just totally left out of this process altogether. I mean, if if there's a, a lawyer that says, you know, don't, do you not owe it to to the aggrieved party that you're representing? And I think I think you could almost say that's what the government was doing here on behalf of of the victims. Do you not bring them into the conversation? Said, here's the here's the offer. Are you guys okay with this? I don't see anybody, uh, you know, from from the aggrieved party saying, yeah, we we knew about this and we signed off yeah. on it. It's all we were going to get. Uh, they seem to be as much and, in the dark so the as problem- you and I are
2: yeah to to the contrary I think as you say there in there is in the dark as as we are, and I think you know the the um you know, the residential school settlement was a very procedurally complex um, uh, matter there, were, you know, proceedings in many courts across the country and involving all kinds of different actors and institutions. And that's one of the downfalls of our legal system is, you know, you can often in, you know, for the benefit of complexity and thoroughness, you can often lose, you know, the voices of the victims and their their participation. So it's it's not clear to me, uh, you know, I'm not a I'm not a scholar of the mechanics of the residential schools uh, settlement agreement. So it's not clear to me the exact reason why it was the government in the church uh you know duking this out in front of uh, i think it was the queen's bench in manitoba um as opposed to you know involving survivors lawyers or anyone else but uh, you know it could be a matter of you know an amount that the catholic church had agreed to pay to the government you know the government was paying up front uh mm-hmm. to fund the you know the the, the billions of dollars that this uh, settlement involved and the, the catholic church had agreed to make a contribution essentially to to cover some of the government's expense um, that kind of a scenario usually you don't have the ultimate uh, the ultimate beneficiary of the settlement involved because you know they're getting paid regardless it's you know they're getting paid with defendant number one's dollars and then it's between defendant number one and number two uh, you know what's going on in terms of who's funding it and how um, but but from the that's only about the dollars and cents it's not about the moral part of this and you know we talk about damages and they have not just compensation but they also have you know vindication and deterrence purposes. And so it's an important, uh, you know, there's there's a moral principle at stake here too. It's not just you know follow the money and who got who got paid. Yeah. It's also what was the what was the consequence and the impact, uh, you know, for the defendant uh, who's supposed to have certain obligations under a settlement agreement.
0: Well, it's it's a very frustrating circumstance, and, and and we can understand the skepticism, I guess, when the government makes announcements about this. As we mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, uh, we'll judge them by, by their actions, not by their words, in these situations. David, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us today
2: thanks bill and the only thing i'd say too is if there's any survivors who listen to this conversation today who find it uh, challenging you know the indian residential support uh, hotline is uh, survivors hotline is still out there and is a support that's available for folks who are having some difficulties so appreciate uh, appreciate it very much bill and have a nice morning
0: Yeah, and that's a good heads up. I appreciate that too. Take care, David. David Taylor, lawyer representing First Nations in many of these uh, litigious situations with the government and, uh, well, in this case, the Catholic Church.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. How are you
0: feeling with the announcement that we had last week? Well, series of announcements, really, about Omicron and and the projections from the Ontario science table about how many cases we may see by the end of this year. And as we mentioned earlier in the program, an awful lot of businesses that we're already developing, and maybe in some cases initiating uh, back to the workplace programs, uh, have put those on pause uh, for God knows how long now, because we just don't know what the numbers are going to look like. But it's got to have an impact on us from, from a psychological and mental standpoint uh, to still be in the same situation. Uh, a number of people I've talked to over the last four or five days just thought, you know, I thought we saw a light at the end of the tunnel, and now these new numbers and this new variant, uh, and it's, it's got to wear you down, I guess which is why our next guest and, and the survey we're going to talk about I think is so timely, the Mental Health Index by LifeWorks. Canadians working exclusively in physical workplaces are reporting worsening working lives, and it is having an impact on us, uh, depending on, of course, what you're doing for a living. Joining us to talk about the uh, the results of the survey and the implications of that, uh, we pleased to welcome to the program Paula Allen. Paula is the Senior Vice President of Research and Wellbeing at LifeWorks. Paula, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: A pleasure being here.
0: As I mentioned in my opening here, very timely because I know that this is new information and it looks like we're in the same circumstance that we've been in for the last two and a half years or so, many of us. Uh, And it's, it's starting to wear us down and there's always a concern about mental health in the workplace and the impact that it's going to have on productivity and that it's going to have on each of us individually. Maybe start with a bit of an overview, Paula. What did the data tell you about where we are from that standpoint?
3: Well, even though we were developing the mental health index well before the pandemic started, we actually launched in April of 2020, and uh, we saw a massive decline in the collective mental health of the working population at that time. So a really significant increase in anxiety, depressive symptoms, uh, decrease in optimism, so pretty much every indicator had, had dropped. And we have seen a bit of an increase over the past little while, uh, but it's still absolutely nowhere near where it was in 2019 and before. So we're, we're definitely feeling the mental health impacts of this situation.
0: What What's your read on that? Because I, I, I've noticed that, too. we I don't want to say we were used to it. But I guess we've come to accept that, okay, this is the way our lives are going to be for a little while. Uh, I think the first uh, series you released, I guess, as you mentioned, was early, early days of the pandemic. We didn't know what we were dealing with. And I guess that only adds to the anxiety, doesn't it?
3: It does actually, but you know, we're not really out of that. You know, what's going to happen next phase? You know, even though we know a little bit more about the, this, this virus, there's still a lot of unknowns. Like, I don't think many of us would have anticipated such a swift and necessary reaction to another variant. We, you know, we like to we like to think positively. We like to sort of focus on the things that are, are going well, and then this just kind of came into our lives. And the other thing that's still a bit of an uncertainty is the long term impact of what our social and working lives will look like. Mm-hmm. So, maybe we're, you know, some of us are not as, as concerned about the virus itself, but there have been so many changes in the way we interact and in the way we work that just the uncertainty of how things will settle is something that's impacting people as well.
0: Well, there's one of the elements here. We'll we'll talk about a few of the bullet points here because there's, there's some fascinating insight here. Uh, the differences in mental health scores between those with uh, or with or without uh, emergency savings have been reported since the launch of the index. In other words, if you've got a bit of a safety net from a financial standpoint, that's that's got to uh, give you some reassurance that look at no matter how rough this thing gets, I'm, I'm going to be okay. Uh, not all of us have that circumstance or that luxury, do we?
3: Yeah, unfortunately, that is very true. Um, and you know, there's prior research that actually had made a connection between mental health and, and financial well-being. But what this pro, what this uh, this pandemic has shown us is how significant that connection is. So you are absolutely right. With all the change and all the uncertainty, and really a, a kind of a feeling of loss of control in many areas having at least that financial cushion has been very protective. So those who don't have that have been particularly vulnerable to the, the overall impacts of the, of, of the pandemic. And, and, and again, you know, this is something that we're not going to kind of get out of uh, exactly the same way, either from a societal health or a mental health point of view. So we really do have to pay attention to making sure that we get out of it in the best way.
0: You also interest, uh, there's a, a stat here that I found fascinating. We've talked an awful lot about, and we just did again earlier in the program here, talk about the, the mental health issues to do with the uh, students in elementary and, of course, in secondary schools. Uh, but you also focused in on uh, full-time post-secondary students uh, and the impact that the, the pandemic has had on them. It's, it's a group that not too many people are paying attention to, but you found some interesting numbers there about the way that they're they're reacting to this.
3: Yeah, so since the beginning of the pandemic, they're the group that has actually been the most compromised. Uh, and there are a few re- reasons for this. Th- that's a period of time where there's a lot of changes in life, just generally speaking. So it's a vulnerable time, like whenever you have life changes, whenever you're going into unknown situations, um, that that tends to be a, a fairly vulnerable period. But the thing that has cushioned post-secondary students before has really been social circles, you know, the ability to feel part of a, you know, a sense of belonging with your friends, making sure that you're establishing new relationships. You know, that's actually very protective. Relationships for all of us are protective, but particularly at that time in life. And that is really what has suffered. So, you know, the academic part of it is one thing, but the social part of it is a huge uh, part of that that, that that time of life. And on top of it, you know, we just finished speaking about uh, financial vulnerability and post-secondary students. Many are very, very financially vulnerable and the types of jobs that they had to help supplement their income to help keep them afloat were the types of jobs that were most negatively impacted by the pandemic. So they've really suffered a one-two punch
0: you're absolutely right I mean if you talk about anybody's post-secondary experience whether it's college university whatever the case might be that that's the word they use the experience it's not just what's going on in the classroom it's the it's it's the, the you know the socialization that goes on there the, the friendships you develop uh, that sort of thing that they're, they're basically robbed of that I guess because of what's going on right now aren't they
3: Without question. And, and if one thing has been positive about this, it's really helped us realize some of the things that are essential to us. Like we, we take so many things for granted because they're just there as part of our lives. But uh, with the pandemic, there's so many things that we can't take for granted. And I think one of the things is really that social support, that social contact, your social circle. It's so important, and we've known this uh, for a number of years, that it is a cushion to stressors. It's a cushion to you know, things that might otherwise uh, be damaging to us from a mental health point of view. And unfortunately, before the pandemic, our society had been drifting towards a lot more isolation. And the pandemic just increased that, but increased it in such a stark way that I'm hoping that we have a bit of a wake up call and we realize that we have to invest in our relationships as much as we can in every way that we can, uh, because not doing so is really not, not healthy for us. 24%
0: 24 percent of canadians in the report here uh, indicate that their personal life is worsened compared to before the pandemic uh, the mental health group of uh, uh, this group is about 12 points below the national average is is that because of the absence of, of those societal groups and those those that that comfort group that we all seem to have people that we can lean on and talk to uh, they're not as readily available as they were pre-pandemic
3: yeah, that's a, a huge part of it. And, and the other part of it is that um, when we're under strain, sometimes that strain shows itself in our relationships. Like you probably recall early on in the pandemic, there was an increase in domestic violence. Again, mm-hmm. financial strain and general strain. Sometimes, you know, we have maladaptive responses to that. Um, but for the majority of people, it and, and, and actually we're seeing it in workplace relationships as well, it's really not so much bad things that happens to some, but it's the absence of good things. You know, the absence of, you know, those that time together, that those shared experiences, the small things that actually feel the people connected and supported and that feed relationships have really been diminished, uh, which is one, one of the reasons I'm highlighting how important it is for us to intentionally invest in that.
0: What about seeking help? Are we doing that? And, and for those who are, it's, it's being done in a different way than, than the traditional method of uh, having a face-to-face meeting with somebody uh, to sit down and talk about your concerns or your troubles, etc. A lot of this has to be done remotely or electronically these days. Uh, and, and I've heard from an awful lot of folks, Paula, that said, well, it's just too impersonal. I, can't, I, I don't get anything out of it, uh, which I guess really just adds to the, to the uh, I guess, the feeling of anxiety that a lot of people are into these days.
3: Yeah, it, it is very interesting. Uh, one of the things we do know is that from um, a clinical efficacy point of view, having counselling through vid- uh, video or digital means like internet uh, cognitive behavioural therapy, you know, we, we know that it is effective. But the other thing that we know is very important is that the person has to feel comfortable with the modality. Mm-hmm. And what we are finding is that 37% of, of working Canadians really prefer that in-person approach and another 12 percent would be fine with digital as long as it's there there's a combination of digital and in person so you know what you said is correct i mean when we are feeling when we're feeling vulnerable that human connection is is very important and sometimes more important for some than than others to have that in a counseling uh, counseling setting so it just reminds us that as helpful as these video and digital means are, we, we can't just say, okay, well, we're gonna go like that in our society. We, we continue to need a range of options for people and that's what's gonna ha- end up making the most difference for all.
0: And, and what are employers doing about this? I know that's kind of the other side of the coin from the, uh, the research that you were doing here, talking about how workers are impacted by this. Uh, But are they cognizant of that? Are they making allowances or offering support programs, Uh, especially, as you say, in the workplace? A lot of workplaces where you're still not working from home, but in whatever that environment might be, probably don't have as many employees there, which could possibly mean uh, more workload for the ones who are there, which is only going to add to the frustration. Are, are, Are the employers aware of this and can they make those accommodations or do they just have to say too bad, so sad? That's just the way things are.
3: Well, I think the good thing is another good thing around the pandemic is that more employers than ever before are taking this this mental health issue in the workplace very seriously. So we've had employers offer counseling services, for example, to part time and contract workers, whereas, you know, prior to the pandemic, they didn't have that access because they weren't considered, you know, benefit eligible. Uh, we've had uh, organizations, uh, you know, have all employee calls, not just your, your kind of voluntary lunch and learn, around mental health to help make sure that people have that awareness that we're addressing stigma, that people feel encouraged to reach have services. Um, you know, the promotion of mental health services through employee assistance programs that offer, you know, 24-7, 365 access to support is, is definitely gone, gone up. So we have seen that. But, of course, it's not every employer. It's not every organization. I, I would hope that it would be even more. But definitely a larger proportion of organizations are taking this very seriously as they should.
0: When you talk to your clients about that and, and, and the ones who do care, and I, I like to think that's most of them uh, care about the well-being of their employees. Uh, as you say, one of the things that's lacking is, is the personal contact that might have been there and the camaraderie uh you know just to be able to have a, a an off the record conversation or off the cuff conversation about you know the the game you watched over the weekend or, or you know what the restaurant that you went to or something that's gone now for an awful lot of people uh or even just you know having your 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 supervisor pop their head in and say hey how's it going today paul did you have a good weekend i mean th- that sort of thing that matters to an awful lot of people uh are companies going to try to compensate? I mean, you have to do I guess they do it through emails or phone calls now as opposed to the personal contact. But it, an attempt to try to, to bridge that gap and to try to create that, that sense of, the hey, we're still all part of this one big team.
3: Yeah, you know, what? and and the, people are starting to think about it, um, but it is the next big rock. It is the next hurdle that we have to go over. You know, when we started this this sort of um, decentralized uh, work environment, you know, where people were working from home, et cetera, you know, we saw some consequences of it. You know, we saw the people's sense of belonging. Had declined. And that's a big driver to this resignation. You know, even for people who go into the workplace, their belonging was stronger, but with the tension in the workplace around health and safety and, you know, dealing with customers, and some of the colleague relationships were impacted as well. So I think we, we really are realizing that the workplace is an important part of our overall, overall well being. And that sense of belonging, that relationship value, those positive experiences are hugely important and they're being stripped away so we are starting to think about how to actually bring that back in a new reality but right now it is a big rock it hasn't been fully solved but it has to be
0: there's one part here why i'm saving this to the end because i think it's so very important it's something i've heard anecdotally from just about everybody you're dealing with pressures varying amounts of pressures depending on your work environment and depending on the relationship you have with uh, whoever you are working with but lack of sleep uh, seems to be a common complaint. And I know that came up in the survey a, a lot, didn't it?
3: Oh, yeah. That actually came up as the number one thing that people are interested in uh, in terms of supporting their well-being. And I'm glad that there is that awareness because, boy, sleep is such an important part of both your physical and your mental health. Like, it's it's if, if you think about how you respond if you have continuous extreme lack of sleep, so you know, the symptoms are actually difficult to differentiate from depression. So it does impact you. It does impact your mind. It is very important. And and the second thing that came up was quite interesting is people just needing uh, ability to help them with mental focus and problem solving and and really some of these cognitive things. And again, I think that's really important as well, because as we are in an environment where there are a lot of distractions, where there's a lot of things kind of, you know, sapping of, of, you know, our minds, um, and when we're dealing with sometimes uh, anxiety or depressive symptoms, having that ability to focus your mind is really important. And, and, and more, more than just meditation, actually, it, it is building a, a larger skill.
0: Well, because I think a lot of us would look at that, you know, from a, a physical standpoint of restorative sleep, and say, "Oh, yeah, I can get by three, four hours a night." Uh, a, a lot of people I've talked to have changed their opinion on that. Right now, said, "No, no, no I need a lot more uh, to to get ready for the day and and to deal with the psychological aspects of it too." Uh, you're right. When you're tired and and you you know just generally that kind of malaise, you can't work as well, and then that just exacerbates the situation. So it's it's a very important part of that, and I'm glad that it was included here. Forty four percent. Of canadians report that improving sleep is the greatest value for their mental health so i guess we're getting it finally and understanding that uh it's a fascinating survey it's always great to, to talk uh, to the folks uh, at lifeworks uh, because you give us pretty good insight as to how we're doing on a daily basis and and uh, a weekly basis as we go through this uh thank you paula for the great work that you guys are doing and thanks for spending some time with us today really appreciate it
3: oh it is my pleasure thank you
0: take care paula allen who is the uh, senior vice president of research